Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material from all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links support the show at no extra cost to you. In Season 12, the focus was big franchises and series. We covered both Paddington films, adapted from the beloved children's book character created by Michael Bond. Oh, I love those films so much. Hugh Grant is perfect. For our Pitch Perfect series, the first film was adapted from Mickey Rapkin's nonfiction book about collegiate acapella competitions. It's like a short story of my life, literally. I lived college acapella. Sing it, brother. I lived college acapella. <laughs> I didn't mean literally. <laughs> You know who you're talking to, right? The Twilight Saga dominated the season with five films adapted from Stephanie Meyer's vampire romance novels, Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, and the two Breaking Dawn parts. Dominated with awkward romance and nonsense logic is more like it. <laughs> that too. Another Thin Man brought us back to Dashiell Hammett's only Thin Man sequel based on other Hammett material, The Farewell Murder, that wasn't just based on the characters from the first film. We talked about Train Spotting and its sequel, T2 Train Spotting, adapted from Irvine Welsh's novels. Ugh, I hate the sequel's name. I do too. And the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, adapted from J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy series. Love these. Extended editions all the way, baby. Plus, all the Mission Impossible films based on the 1960s TV series. And we've still got at least one more to go. Members got to hear us chat about The Hustler and The Color of Money, adapted from Walter Tevis's books. Get all of these books and more at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals.
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. The raid two is over. Bring back the ball. Nama saya Rama. Saya tahu siapa kamu. Abang saya bilang, saya bisa percaya bapak. Abang lu nggak salah. Lu suka atau tidak suka dengan peristiwa hari ini, Resa dan anak buahnya akan ngincer lu. Mereka akan ngincer lu sampai ketemu. Kalau kita nggak cepat bertindak, lu bakal hilang. Keluar lu juga. Sekarang ini kota dibagi rata. Antara tokoh kita bangun dan kota bumi keluar ke Jepang. Ujo, anaknya bangun. Sekarang ada di penjara. Ini saat yang tepat buat lu masuk dan dekatin dia. Gue mau lu gabung sama tim gue. Lu bakal dilatih ulang sampai lu punya kemampuan yang lebih baik. Untuk membela kepentingan yang benar. Artinya... Lu harus gue tangkap. Okay, Andy, you're the Raid 2. Uh, we're doing it. This is the Raid 2. It's the second of the Raid series, uh, as noted by the number two. Uh, it also has the word <laughs> Berendal at the end of it, uh, if you are in certain places. And that, as I understand it, means thug in Indonesian. Am I right there? I think I'm close. Uh, but that's not how it was released here. It was re- just released as the Raid Two, but I, I also have seen it as the Raid uh, the Raid Two Berendal. Like I think the the actual Blu-ray that I have has it written that way, even though when the film title pops up, it does not say that. So, yeah, it's it's interest it's an interesting thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know that there was that whole element where when the first film was released the American distributor required it to have that subtitle because they couldn't just get the rights to the raid. And so they added... Uh, Redemption. uh, Gareth Evans talked about the fact that, oh, uh, you know, that's actually, I kind of like it because it means I can kind of like, as I make these sequels, I can kind of add another thing to it to kind of expand the universe. And so I suppose that's that's part of it. But I think also just, you know, the raid, the raid two, I think that's fine too. I also think it's fine. I think it's fine. <laughs> Interesting thing about this movie, and you alluded to this last uh, last week before we dig into the movie proper, that this movie was uh, Gareth Evans had already had the idea for this movie, and it was too big a script to actually get funded. And so it was rejiggered to become The Raid 2, a sequel to The Raid, which has... Um, you know, it takes our uh, is rewritten to include our our central prote- protagonist and to rejigger a bit of the the set of the story to actually create this new expanded raid two. Um, I uh, in terms of doing that, we've talked about other movies that do that. Obviously, Cloverfield, Cloverfield Paradox, God Particle, um, The Cellar. Um, were not originally written as Cloverfield movies, but were rejiggered. Uh, Die Hard 3, Die Hard with a Vengeance, was originally written as a different movie. Uh, there are there are lots of these movies out there that are scripts that are written to be standalone movies and get rejiggered to be put into series. Ocean's 12 was originally a different movie, not the sequel to Ocean's 11. They have similar themes, similar character structures, and are easy to kind of manipulate into the existing theme. 
I, my first question for you is, before we dig into the content of this movie, how well does that work here for you? Did you ever stop and question and think, oh, this doesn't feel like the Raid movie? Uh, no, I never felt that. I, I felt it was a strong continuation of the story, and it felt natural based on how the first film ends and how we kind of set up this sense of a corrupt police system and the, that's tied into the the local uh, mob circles and i mean that's essentially where we go with this and and so i didn't i didn't feel that it felt shoehorned in yeah me neither to me it felt effortless and uh just a very natural place to put our protagonist uh after the, the you know the ending of of the raid. Um, I thought it, it just felt like an easy, easy move. Never questioned um, anything apart from the fact that, you know, some of the characters that we got to know, like the the dirty lieutenant who got walked out of the of the building and you, and the yeah. brother, Andy, are, they make it into this movie, but not for very long. <laughs> then, well, yeah, I mean, even Bogo or is it Bogo? Um, the one that he's he's with uh, or Bowo. He's, uh, you know, I mean, he's there at the start and he just, you know, as he leaves, he just tells Rama, you know, just watch out for yourself or whatever. And that's the last we see of him, too. Yeah. So it's like everybody is pretty much written out of it except for Rama and characters that we had heard alluded to last time that we had yet to meet. And and so that's, you know, like like Reza is the one who we've we heard. He's the corrupt, you know, head of the police who. um uh, they had talked about it a little bit and and they mentioned in the last film uh, you know Bunawar you know I think somebody tells him talk to Bunawar he's he's one that can be trusted in inside the police and so those two names we had heard and now we finally meet them yeah so I, I thought it was a, it was an effortless great setup for what ends up being an exhilarating film and it it didn't sound like though that they had to change too much of the story. You know, I, I think it largely was the same story. I think the big shift was that they took a character who wasn't originally a cop, but who got into these circles, um, and they just they said, okay, well, what if he is this cop and he goes undercover? And it basically, then it's the same story. So, like, I, yeah, they didn't really have to do too much to it. But in a way, I feel like it actually made it stronger. Like, I, I like I, I think the fact that he's a cop makes it a more interesting and more compelling story. You're Gareth Evans and you're saying, I just got the raid. What? Like, how lucky do I feel right now that I now have a way to get this movie made that if, if I could do this one right, then I can do this other movie that I really wanted. That feels like just a lucky break. Yeah. Well, this movie was rated R when it came out here in the States for sequences of strong, bloody violence throughout sexuality and language. Where was the sexuality? When they were uh, with those two prostitutes. And, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, the, and Uko was threatening on, on beating them up. Okay. All right, I guess. I guess there was some sexuality there. <laughs> <laughs> there, was some, there was definitely some suggestive singing and screaming. <laughs> uh, all right, Andy. So uh, I texted you. Uh, immediately after I finished watching this for the first time, and I said, "This is a best-in-class movie of the of the genre." I was kind of blown away by how 
connected I felt to this movie, like just uh, how it felt for being such a big, operatic, violent action martial arts movie that they also were able to to not even sneak in story that made it compelling and interesting. And, and I, you know, I, I found curious to see what's going to happen next to all the twists and turns of this of the corrupt cop regime. Um, it, I found the story ended up being downright rewarding. Uh, I, I think it's uh, I, I think it's a great film. What they do. Um, we've talked about this a lot this particular season, since we have been looking at a lot of franchises and series of films is the whole idea of leveling up and what what can you add to a particular story to kind of expand it so it doesn't necessarily feel like it's just more of the same. You know, we certainly had that struggle when we were looking at the Pitch Perfect films and uh, but but talking about how other stories in our uh, in our season had had actually done that and going all the way back to James Cameron who had said that when he was making aliens and what can I do to to level up how, how can I expand this so there's so I'm not just doing a rehash of the first film and and that's what I think was interesting and I, I think Evans very smartly latched on to that original script and, and found a way to kind of tie these together because it's not just a film about you know police raiding a building, which worked in the first film. It was very effective. And even though we have the title The Raid, still in context of this film, I mean, it does end up being like this police, uh, this undercover cop who is trying to infiltrate this, um, all of this corrupt uh, wheelings and dealings going on between these these two ga- gangs and the police and everything. And and so it's it's it really kind of changes the story, but, and it expands it in an incredible way. And so I, I really enjoy the characters. I enjoy the, the shape that the story takes and it, you know, it gives us a chance to look at so much more going on outside of that building, which set up the world. But, uh, you know, this really takes a chance to, uh, open those doors so we can see so much of, uh, all of the other things that kind of led to, that particular situation where that building was kind of run by these criminals. Right, right. And and it doesn't make us live in, I, I thought it was interesting, it doesn't make us live in so much the, the, uh, uh, the you know, we're going for the big boss thug kind of video game structure, right? It, it introduces and allows us to explore more complexity in the relationships of the police and the, the gangs that operate in the community in a way that, that feels very, very natural to me. And it puts us in a, in some, an interesting, just as an audience member, it puts us in an interesting sort of ethical predicament right away that our our principal character, our protagonist, Rama, brings the dirty lieutenant that we spent time with in the last movie out and sets him in a in a room with Bunoir and Bunoir's cops, this who is ahead of this internal uh, unit, and shoots the lieutenant in the face many many times and kills him. Right. And he's doing that under the uh, uh, auspices of being able to protect Rama, saying, I can't protect him if this guy lives or can't protect you and your family if this guy lives. Uh, So I'm doing a good deed. But that immediately sets the tone for the movie that good people, presumably good people, people who we set up, we're set up to be able to trust, will do bad things. Therefore, the entire universe is, from our perspective, a bit unreliable. 
and uh, and puts you back on your heels a little bit. And that that was my experience with it, that it that, you know, I immediately was able to call certain shots where Rama um, is, you know, where he uh, is is sent undercover to prison and. Un, uh, you know, he's told oh, you'll be there for a couple months to do this thing undercover. And my first thought was, yeah, you're not getting out for years. And it wasn't out for years. Those kinds of things I was able, able to see around the corner. But there were many other twists that I felt like I'm, I didn't see that coming. I enjoyed the fact that the movie was still able to kind of play with me uh, in the relationships once we get into the, the gangs. Well, and uh, you know, I think that it's interesting because right out of the gate, you know, like I said, we had been told in the last film, oh, you can trust Bunoir. He is the he is the one good cop there, and he's the one who you can rely on. And then he goes and talks to Bunoir, and Bunoir immediately kills this guy. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And even Rama's like, I brought him in so he could serve his time and serve, you know, uh, you know, pay for his crimes and everything. And and, you know, Bunawar's perspective is like, if if you did that, he probably would have gotten out or killed, but then they would have your information, too. And so I'm just doing this to protect you. And so you instantly get a sense of, like, even in levels of, of doing things that are right, they're still doing things that, uh, like, not necessarily by the books, because otherwise it it's not going to get done. And... That was really interesting. And then, you know, he he tells him, I'm doing this to protect you and, and to save you and your family. And then his brother dies and and Bunawar then is telling him, look, there, I can only protect your wife and your kid. I can't protect you anymore, which I, I was like, well, OK, I'm not exactly sure how that works. But still, it, it, you know, this is a, a potentially kind of corrupt, like, the you know, you know, the the the. Um, the means justify the ends sort of cop who says, I can't protect you. You have to help me. Otherwise, I can't guarantee your safety. They'll always be over your shoulder. And so it's kind of almost like he forces Rama's hand to become this guy who does help them. And I thought that was really interesting. And even even like through the whole thing, once we get to the end, how we never really get complete closure between Rama and, and Bunawar, but we kind of get a sense of Rama's position on all that with his last line in the film, which I thought was really strong. And so I love the way that you get these, the sense of things. Oh, and then also like when we're talking uh, to uh, when Rama is talking to Eka, who he learns is also an undercover cop as Eka is dying. And Eka is like, I don't want people to think that I was a criminal. I want them to, know that I was doing this for the, you know, for the good guys and all this sort of stuff. And then when Rama talks to Bunawar about that, Bunawar is just like, oh, he turned. He, you know, he wasn't, you know, he had, he, you know, led to the death of all these other cops and stuff. And so it's like, who's, like, where is the line for good and bad here? And I, I don't know. I found the way that it was portrayed with all of that, like, even the good guys, other than Rama, seemed to all be just shades of it. Well, I, that's a really good point, especially you talk about that last line, that last sequence where the Japanese gang is now in. This is after Rama has completely decimated the, <laughs> the crime syndicate right in that building. We'll talk more about that. But he walks down. He's exhausted. He's beaten. He's bloody. He's had the, the final fight. The Japanese gang shows up and, and we don't hear what they're saying. Right. It goes into 
foggy peanuts land and we don't hear those words, which I thought was an interesting choice because we don't hear what this what this gang member is is saying to him, the son of, of Goto. But he's saying something. Then uh, Rama just says, no, I'm done. Right. I'm I'm finished with whatever this is. Well, isn't that his admission that he's no longer that somewhere between the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie, he became less of a cop, right? Because if he was a cop, he wouldn't be finished because the Japanese gang members are they're there to do bad stuff, too. Right. Like what? what, So I think that's a really interesting like character arc that puts him in a very interesting position at the end, at least for me in my head to wonder, is he going to report to the office at eight o'clock on Monday morning? Right. Or is he is he really done with everything? Yeah, I, I, I found that to be an interesting way that we have things end with the film. And I, or, I mean, we're jumping all over the place now. We're talking just about the end of the film. But still, yeah, the way that we had kind of seen his reactions with Bunoir over the course of the film, like you had this sense that Bunoir had very specific ways to do things. And I mean, he had a wire on him as soon like day one when he got out of prison. And, uh, you know, Rama was smart enough to remove that so that he didn't get it discovered and, and lead to his murder right there. But there there still is this sense that he doesn't completely trust Bunoir. He seemed to really respect Eka and found something with that character that um, that he kind of bought into. And I kind of felt like it was that final conversation that he had with Bunawar, where Bunawar told him that, oh, Eka was a, a traitor to the force and all this sort of stuff, where, I don't know, it was a sense, maybe it's just for Rama's, like, I just don't even know who to believe anymore. You know, you you seem as corrupt as anyone else. Eka could have been corrupt, but I, I liked him. And it, it all kind of came to this point at the end where he's just like, I don't like because I mean, he tells I I don't know the look on Goto's son's face at the end tells me that he that they're very obviously very pleased (laughs) with the work that Rama has done, essentially like single handedly taking down their enemies so they don't have to do any heavy lifting and probably said, hey, why don't you come work for us? We'd love to have you. And and I don't know, that was just kind of my sense of it because he was smiling and he he seemed to be pretty uh, pleased with all of the stuff that uh, that he sees here. And so and then he says, no, I'm I'm finished. And so my sense is that he is just completely done. I mean, he's been gone from his wife for two plus years and he wants to get back to the normal life. And so I don't know that that was kind of my my read on it. Um, But I like how it is kind of left ambiguous, like you never see Bunawar arrive you see him and the troops driving there but they never get there and so we're kind of left on that shot of of rama as he says i'm finished and that's the end and it's just like wow okay this is a person who's gone through hell and is now through it and refuses to go back which uh, you know i think is is really artfully done for his arc the and i actually like the way um, so many elements in the movie are are moving. They're moving pieces that we don't always get to see. Like it would be I feel like it would be interesting to go back and look at a movie that focused on, uh, you know, a different like that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern the the film and, and just focused on Eka. Like how did Eka get there and how did he become this particular character? And we know he crosses paths with Rama multiple times. But it means more the second time you watch the movie when Rama say, or when Eka says, you know, I'm I know where you come from. 
right? Because he really does probably know exactly where he comes from, right? He probably has a, a much better sense than, than Rama thinks he does um, for, for that relationship. So I, I think that was, a, that was really interesting. Well, and it reminded me a lot of uh, kind of the Infernal Affairs, uh, yeah. The Departed, like that story where you also find out that there were other under, other undercover cops also tied in that you didn't necessarily realize were undercover until that point when they're all kind of close to death. And that that seems to be kind of the the trope in a movie where you 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 reveal that you are undercover as you're about to die because at that point it's like well, why does what it does matter, matter anymore? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but I did uh it, it made me think of that. And you know there uh, it's interesting because we definitely develop his relationship with Eka less than we do with the son, um Uko. I, it's just, but it's interesting to see kind of like how these relationships develop because Eka seemed very much the right hand man to uh, to Uko's father, and Uko was uh, you know kind of like the hot headed son, and a lot of the stuff in the story does feel kind of tropey the way that it's it's put together. I guess one of the reasons that I find it so um, interesting and compelling is that they're clearly um, just having. Uh, they've they've found a fun way to craft it, and I really enjoy the characters and kind of these the complex um, levels that we're going. As far as you know, you know, you've got Uko upset that his dad is not, uh, you know, you know, acting very strong, even though he is. Like as we kind of, I don't know, my sense of Bangoon was that he was actually very smart in his dealings with uh, Goto and his men as far as like the way he would back down from certain situations and stuff. It it seemed like, you know, he's the smart one who's trying to make this thing last. And Uko is this hothead who kind of has Beijo whispering in his ear. And Beijo, who we meet um, at the very beginning of the film as the person who kills Andy, like seems like a person who's trying to uh, to seed uh, discord between these different groups so that he can kind of move to the head. And as we learn out, as we learn, he is meeting with Reza and uh, plotting to kind of take over all of this stuff. And so, I don't know, it's a very, I don't know, I found it to be a very compelling story. And I, I enjoyed the way Evans crafted it with these characters, even if they do feel uh, tropey for the type of film to a certain extent. The first scene we have Eka and Uko talking to each other. And I, I can already tell that the names are going to twist me up over the course of the next several scenes we talk about. But the first scene we have them talking together, they are in the uh, visitation cell at the prison. And Uko is telling Eka, your job is to protect me in here, as if he is, uh, Eka is some sort of uh, conciliary for his dad, right? He's some sort of, maybe he's an attorney or he's, he's, a, he's a fixer. Which I think is is really great. Like when you go back and watch this as knowing that he is somehow undercover has been placed there like he's he must be very, very deep cover. Right. Somebody very long term uh, as an asset to both the police and this organization. But then he looks over and says and and Uko says, you want to help me find out about that guy and points to Rama and Eka looks knowingly and says, oh, that guy, he wheelchaired. You, uh, the politician's son, right? Who, yeah, who had gotten Uko in prison, right? Yeah. For a movie that is so exuberant and so celebratory in its violence, we never actually see the wheelchairing. Did you think that was interesting at all? Like, we never see what got uh, Rama into prison in the first place. I thought that was a, a really interesting choice that actually it, it makes for a very efficient 
you know, storytelling tool to just get us into prison. We see the blowback of that, right, in that big, fantastically shot bathroom fight, but we never see what actually lands him there. Well, we do. We see photos. You know, there are are photos of him on the desk of the warden that we kind of get a sense as to what had happened when, when well, of he's course, first brought there. Well, of course, but photos are not an action scene. <laughs> but, I, but, I don't, it, but it was, wasn't necessary. Like, for me, that was not, like, that's all I needed. We just had to get him in somehow. I'd, that would have just been, I think, something that would have slowed the actual plot down because mm-hmm. that just gets him there and gets him on, the, on Uko's side. And so for me, that never felt like something that needed to be seen. No, I agree with you. I'm calling it a smart choice. Like I'm not. This oh, isn't you seem like you're debate. complaining about like you want at all. To see it. I think it's really smart, and I think it's oh, it's okay. it, for a movie that it, that like shows all kinds of other violence to leave this out. Actually, makes for a really interesting and smart narrative choice to actually just put him in prison. We know the setup. We know how he's supposed to get in prison, and then he gets in prison, and I think that's really great. I also really enjoy that blowback scene so much that the first major fight scene comes in the form of of that solid gray. Um, everybody's wearing gray. They're all in a gray kind of uh, space. Uh, very threatening setup with them all banging on the stall door. Um, it, it's uh, makes him sets him up as a wonderful tough guy with his you know they they really glorify and showing his fists flexing and and moving so slowly even though we know so much violence is going on outside ready to just put him into it thrust him into the fight uh, i thought it was just really great bit of action storytelling well it's not just that and you know i think this speaks to evans as the real craftsman behind this film because he also not only wrote and directed it, but also edited it. And the way that the the entirety of the the film begins, like we, you know, once we kind of get through that opening with uh, Bejo killing Andy, we cut into the bathroom and we see Rama sitting in the stall. We don't have any context. We just see him sitting in the stall and we see, you know, the door is being pounded on. And then it's, we're jumping like all through time as we're kind of getting all of these different pieces to get a sense as to what's happening, right? We're cutting from that to him talking to the cop uh, or to, to uh, uh, Bunawar and that whole setup. And then we're seeing the funeral for uh, for his brother when he kind because I mean, initially he turns Bunawar down and then we see the funeral and then we see him in the car and then we we kind of keep cutting back into that that bathroom and we don't really have any context for what's happening here. So that whole open is designed in a way where we're kind of jumping through time and space, getting these bits and pieces to set us up for that first big action sequence when he's confronting all of these people who are clearly on the side of of that uh, politician and his son and have been paid to kind of take this person down. So the way that all of that is crafted is just such efficient storytelling. And it, it, it makes for an opening that for me, like when I, when I watch it and I see how Evans cuts all this together, it just, it, it moves us into that story and into the prison where that's where he needs to get as quickly, as quickly as possible in context of the story so that he can meet Uko and get the rest of the story going. So the way that Evans crafted that, I just, I found exhilarating. Well, and it's not a short movie, right? By like, it's, it's two and a half hours 
And it still it feels to me like it still moves very, very quickly. Like I didn't have any problem feeling this is this movie slows down. It's too long for its story. But but making that choice to take us to to jump around through time is is really efficient at, at telling us a bunch of different stories, a bunch of different threads at the same time before we get into the the first big fight. The second big fight. Can we talk about principal action sequences? Because that second big fight is the the mud fight. Yeah. Which is dozens and dozens and dozens of guys. The the setup is, uh, you know, there's an assassination attempt and Rama stops the assassination attempt with a uh, uh, well-placed broom handle. But it, it ends up in this massive, massive brawl on the um, incredibly violent brawl uh, on the in the grounds of the muddy, rainy kind of central quad area of the prison. It happens to be a very, very, very rainy day and uh, turns into a giant uh, mud fest as the the brawl moves out into the mud. And, you know, there were there were some really exciting wonders um, over the course of a lot of the action sequences, including this one, where you have the camera really kind of dancing and moving around, following person to person and and jumping. I mean, I, I, they weren't incredibly long, but in context of an action sequence, they were. And I think the longest one was about 50 seconds during this particular fight. But that's a long time because you're following a couple people fighting and then you're moving to this other group and then you're following two guys trying to scale the fence and then they fall, get they get shot and they fall back down. Like the way the whole thing's crafted, it's mm-hmm. exhilarating. The uh, the last movie in the raid we talked about um, just how visceral the the fighting was and how you know these guys were taking blows right they were really fine and we I didn't read anything uh, about in the first movie about them talking about how they did how they actually performed the fights it was you know able stunt actors and and martial arts specialists doing some amazing things in uh, reading up on this movie Gareth. Uh, Evan says, uh, you know, you you have to remember that these guys trained for 18 months how to hit each other and pull their pull their punches and kicks at the very last second so they wouldn't actually damage one another because every hit is connecting like every single hit is connecting. We don't do any like camera behind you so you can't see that the actual swing is 12 inches from somebody's face like everything is connecting and i think this movie even more than the last is such an incredible celebrant of people hitting each other for real <laughs> doing it in in a way that is just uh, is just gruesome and fantastic this scene is a great example of it because of uh just the proximity that the camera gets in the fights i i don't know I don't know how they do it without ending up in every single shot covered in mud. Uh, <laughs> it's just so splashy, so splashy. They they shot that for 10 days and there were 120 extras in it. And uh, I mean, it was it was crazy the way that they they put all that together and uh, the complexities of it. They said it was just miserable. But, uh, you know, it ends up I mean, it really is. It's fantastic. And, it, and it's uh, beautiful in the muddiness, the way that they kind of designed this thing to look so um, just is such a mess. And and I don't know, I, I found it to be a thrill because, you know, it's it's all these prisoners and then the guards come in and then everyone's fighting the guards, too. And then more guards come in. And it was just kind of this ever expansion of um, kind of adding more to it and, and building on top of it over and over again. I, I really enjoyed the way that they kept leveling it just in in the fight itself they kept leveling it up 
Well, and the palette is incredible, too. It is like everything is, again, that sort of gray brown of the mud and the sky is weirdly the same color as the mud. But what breaks the two apart is this red building and uh, of the prison that's all around them. And so you end up in this in this space where all of the ground level shots make every character look incredible because they're backed by this beautiful red, like deep red color. And then he walks out of the prison. And my favorite shot, his first shot when he comes through the door is this overhead shot looking down. And it takes a second to figure out what our angle is because the building is along the bottom of the frame because we're on top of the building looking down the side of the building with just a giant, once again, gray palette of concrete that we're looking at, you know, from our perspective, head on. And he uses this palette to tell us in no uncertain terms that two years have passed with a very large two years later (laughs) that goes across the entire screen, which I think is so cool as the little, little tiny bodies walk out of the door that's right below us frame center. I think it's so beautiful, just so well shot and and well thought of uh, and well conceived. Um, you know, camera work. There was a lot of a, a lot of shots in this film, more so than the the previous one, that uh, they wanted to get up really high and look down. In fact, the film starts when you kind of with the assassination of Andy over like uh. an incredibly beautiful. I don't, I don't know if it's a you know a, a farm and crops or if it's just a field. I, I'm not exactly sure what that greenery is, but it's just beautiful, lush green with these little dirt roads cutting through it. It's just a stunning vista. And uh, then suddenly we see some cars drive into it. And we we see something down below, like is that what is that on the road? And then as we get close, we're like, oh, there are holes, or it's a big hole that's been dug here for a body. Um, but like he does that a number of times throughout this film to really kind of contextualize the space where these people are in. And and I don't know, I found it to be interesting because it happens a number of times throughout the film that um, in some big action scenes where it kind of, in a way, like while the action is so big, so bloody, so visceral, when we step back so far as these action moments are happening, you kind of realize how, how small all of this still is in context of kind of the scope of everything that's going on. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I was looking at cinemetrics for the film. Um, and yeah, that, that scene definitely has uh, one of the, it's the second longest shot in the film, which is uh, 50 seconds, like I said. And I can't remember which fight we're looking at, at the uh, right at the middle of the film, but that has the actual longest shot in the film, which is 56.8 seconds. Wasn't that the car the the tri- uh, car shot that's toward the uh that's a, that's a little closer to the end i think that one's 33.4 seconds so i'm not exactly sure what's like right in the middle of the film patsuko it was you you oh of course Yui. right yeah yeah yayan rehuyan's action film yeah. or the the scene oh, in the restaurant so good that was it might uh, be it, the scene in the it, like at the end of that in the alley with the snow i think it's all you think it's in the in the I, it, well, my my recollection, I could be wrong, but when he's fighting inside the restaurant, it's a it's a oneer as he's jumping up on the different, you know, the landings and stuff and jumping down. And it might because then all of a sudden it cuts to that side door as he bursts out. Yeah. I think it's I think it actually starts. It's it's likely inside one. So I'm at one twenty four. One twenty five thirty five is where where it starts. Well, that's in the office. 
that I'm in clearly in the wrong place. There must be some sort of front matter that isn't counting because that's this is the family talking, the dad upset at oh, his son. Yeah. Well, I don't know. But anyway, it's, it's probably that scene. It's thrilling the way that they cry. And, you know, speaking to, you know, we had a pre-show chat before this about kind of violence in film and, and you know, the, the choreography and, and the um, operatic elements that can go into violence. Um, that's something for our members. If you're interested, you can learn more at thenextreel.com slash membership if you would like to get those additional parts of each of these episodes. But, yeah, we, we talked about kind of that um, operatic way that, um, you have it and, and when you have the sort of stunt choreography that you have in this it it kind of i don't know it it becomes something else it's no longer just kind of a a fight scene there's there's this kind of beauty to it in all of its gore but it's it's kind of stunning to watch as as yayan and this is him coming back not playing mad dog but playing a different character he's playing Percoso here and uh you know it's it's just stunning watching him fight in the film that uh, the way he does. Well, it is. He's it's a smaller part. And yet I think he's given so much more because they actually give him the scene with his ex-wife. Yeah. I mean, the way they age him, the way they age him could, you know, they could be making the case that it's, you know, they could have made the case that it's his daughter. I think it's pretty clear that it's his ex-wife, but um, he is, uh, I, I think that was really generous for his character to give him an actual character and not just make him, uh, a, you know, a thug. The fact that they give him a chance to talk to, to Uko, Uko about, you know, being patient and knowing that, you know, when he's ready, he'll be able to, you know, take over for his dad, but just be patient and, uh, and then <laughs> oh, to give him yeah. such an extraordinary fight scene. Well, and that, and that's on that follows like you know Uko hears all of that, knowing he's walking out of the room and and letting all of these assassins in to take him down. Like that's but, that's his intention <laughs> with that entire scene. And here here uh, uh, he is having this conversation about you know the importance of being patient and and uh, you're going to be a great leader and all this sort of stuff, only to be brought down by him. And like when he is in the alley and he looks back to the door and he sees Uko look out and it's just like, all you know, all the pieces are in. I mean, I think he already knew once once he uh, pulled out his the picture of his son in that restaurant is yeah. basically when Uko said, I have to go to the bathroom. I think yeah. that's when uh, Percoso realized something was up and uh, is really that that whole scene, the way it plays is wild. I think it's such an interesting kind of setup for that scene. And it feels like that one feels particularly, um, uh, is, I, I don't know, it's a little bit manga, right? A little bit sort of heightened comic sequence for me, because not only does Zuko leave, but what we don't see while Percoso's head is down is that the entire club has cleared out <laughs> like the music is not, everything's empty now and uh when he comes back up the thugs enter in their suits and that i thought was a really interesting treatment because it it once again highlights that we're not in you know we're not in the real world this is a heightened fantasy world that where things like this can happen and our principal character in a given scene might not notice meanwhile as he's being attacked like the uh, the baseball bat man and um hammer girl are going to town on other thugs in different locations. Well, this is kind of that point in the film where Rama has 
had Bejo like, we're, we're going to move forward with all this. And you see the assassin. And that this is another moment where Evans is using some interesting editing because you have this, uh, I don't know, celebration of some sort, like a parade going on. You cut to like grass, like you're in a big field. And we're not exactly sure why. And then you're following you know, the the baseball Batman as he's dragging his baseball bat, uh, you know, down a sidewalk and you're cutting to Hammer Girl on a train and you're you're intercutting in very interesting way between all these different stories, getting a sense of um, really Bejo taking everybody down. And uh, yeah, it, it was it was interesting because this is kind of um, Uko's part in the whole thing is is dealing with uh, Procoso. So uh, watching each of these different stories. We don't see as much of the assassin here. We just kind of like suddenly we're in the grass and we see blood splatter on it and and he's now dealing with this person in the grass. But then Hammer Girl on the train and Baseball Batman, the meeting of the two guys in the, the back room. Well, and then he's in the um, in that big warehouse where he actually not only hits, he's just finished his his own little parade of devastation with his baseball bat, but then he actually pulls the balls out of his pocket and uses them to to, you know, he he hits them with the bat and actually kills a guy on the other end of the warehouse. It's extraordinarily fun, like really, really a fun way to to, uh, you know, demonstrate his capability. Yeah. And Hammer Girl, like watching her go to town with those hammers on the the uh, I guess that guy's security detail on the train. Uh, like it's horrific the way that you get to see Hammer <laughs> hammers utilized. She does a lot know? with the claw of the lot hammers. A lot claw. of claw work. Yeah, some gru- some gruesome stuff. Uh, but, you know, she's fantastic watching uh, Julia Stell uh, play that character and just uh, leaping around inside a train as she's going to town on, on those people. I mean, it's 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 exhilarating, like all of that action with them. And it's interesting to see kind of how they end up getting utilized throughout the film. For sure. Um, so these are these is also our, our big introduction, really, to these three characters, the assassin, Hammer Girl and, and Baseball Batman. Um, and they become... You know, they essentially take on the role of uh, Mad Dog and Andy and the big boss, um, you know, that we had in the the raid. But we're introduced to them late in the film, which I thought was, again, really interesting that they are not the principal nemeses of Rama going through the film, which, again, I think is to its credit that it is such an expansive uh, universe in in this film that it takes us, you know, what I'm looking at it right now. It's an hour and 35 minutes into the movie before Hammer Girl is assassinating her businessman on the train and and baseball bat boy says, "Give me the ball." Like that's I, that's great patience for introducing some of our most fun villains. Yeah, no, it is, and I love the the act of like of of like insolence that the guy. He says, give me the ball. And his target takes the ball and throws it out the door. <laughs> Why are you doing that? That's <laughs> just going to make him mad. I would. I, I, yeah, if somebody's hitting balls at me, I'm not giving him yeah. a ball. But he still has a bat. I know. I know. But still, it's like, uh, yeah, I don't know. And that transitions us to the great, great, great chase that Rama gets into, he gets into the cab and we see the thugs running from a great distance at the cab from the perspective of just of the passenger seat next to the cab driver. It is great, great, great way to set up this this uh, um, this particular 
uh, chase that begins. I think it's wonderful. Well, the chase, yeah, this is an interesting one because it's, I mean, the the car chase itself is not very big. It's it's a very short car chase, but it's kind of fun to see as he kind of bends down and, and hits the gas just to get away from the group and then has to get out. And then it turns into this restaurant battle where, I mean, it's just gruesome, the stuff that happens, particularly when he holds the guy's head on the, on the hot stove and uh, just kind of burns him horribly. And that's an interesting twist because then as he's done and he's defeated all of them, the guy of the, on the stove is the last one. He sees that the guy has a police badge and realizes that this group that he had just been fighting were all cops. And that was an interesting twist because now you're like, whoa, okay, so this is a cop and he just took down a whole group of police officers. You know, where is that going to put him in the eyes of Bunawar? You know, and, and as we find out, According to Bunawar, these were all actually corrupt cops, and they had actually been um, hired by Reza to take him out because he is. Uh, although I was, I guess that was something that kind of confused me. Like I wasn't sure why Reza would want to take him out because he, you know, for all intents and purposes, was on Uko's team, and Uko uh, was on, you know, had joined up with Bejo and Reza. So I wasn't exactly sure why they were taking him out. Did you have any sense on that? No, I, I, I felt like it was. Um, no, I, I actually didn't. Now that you bring up that question, it never crossed my mind. I felt like they were, I thought they were Reza's thuggy team and that that was enough. Well, it could be. It just, it, I mean, it's an interesting thing because Uko, it seems like once he kind of teams up with Bejo is kind of trying to figure out like, who is going to be safe for me to stay working with? Like, that seems to be why he's meeting with Procoso. Like, yeah. you know, getting a read from him like, hey, if you join me, then then we can take down my dad and we can rule together. Or, you know, you can be by my side instead of by his side. Like, it seems there's a little bit of that. But he never has that meeting with Rama. Uh, you know, that's, that's an interesting element that Rama, uh, I, I guess I'm just am not exactly sure how to read the view of the relationship between Uko and Rama from the up from like Bejo and everyone else because on Uko like Uko's dad Bangun seems to view along with Eka his right hand guy the other undercover cop they seem to view Rama as Uko's <laughs> I don't want to say caretaker but but his shadow who kind of helps take care of Uko and get him out of trouble when he gets in trouble. Like, Bangoon is always telling him, please keep an eye on my son and let me know if he's doing anything stupid. Like, that's kind of Dad's intention with Rama. And so, uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe these other people view him as more in the hands of Bangoon and Eka than they do in with Uko. You know, it's interesting that you say it that way because this whole thing could have changed very dramatically had Procoso actually stood up and gone to the bathroom with uh, in, in their conversation in the restaurant like that was a that was sort of a choose your own adventure path that he could have said you know you're right maybe let's go do some stuff together and uh, that whole this this whole thing could have yeah, it was a choice, is what I'm saying. Like it, for Percoso, yeah. For Percoso, yeah. I mean, it, it seems like Uko seems to be kind of giving everybody choices. Like, even his dad, he essentially gives, he does all of this. Like, he sets up all of these murders to get his dad to, you know, go to war with against Go Goto. Uh, but his dad is like, no, no, somebody on my side clearly is making bad decisions. I am fully at fault and I will take care of it. And like, that's Bangoon's position on all of this. And so it's interesting, like Uko seems to be really doing what he can with Bejo to 
to rise to the top, even though his dad doesn't seem like his dad. You know, it's it's the old thing. He's he's older. He's wiser. He views things in much longer terms. And Uko seems to just want to get there faster. And you know, he's younger, more hot headed. Um, so it's it's interesting, kind of like all the inner workings of all this. I still just struggle with Rama and his position in all this, because I mean, even like why would Reza choose to assassinate Rama? And uh, because then Rama comes over because Eka called and said, hey, you need to come get Uko out of here, because at that point, dad was just beating up Uko. And um, and but without realizing that Bejo and his team were about to show up and that's where they show up and that's where Uko kills his dad. And Rama comes in and only fights them because he has no context and he just sees dead dad, bad guys. I'm going to take them out and protect the team that I'm with. And they don't choose Rama. Like, that's a point where once the assassin manages to to knock Rama out, uh, Uko doesn't say to kill him. And so they say, let's let's keep him and let's take him. And so I guess it makes sense that, I don't know. Again, I, I guess I'm not really sure. Like, does Uko want to keep Rama alive? Because Bejo clearly doesn't plan on that. Like, he takes him out of there. In a car, though, where it seems like he's taking him to be assassinated, and that's, you know, the whole chasing where Eka saves him. That's an interesting question, because it feels like there's a connection between the police and one of the gangs that we don't, that is not clear to me yet. I mean, it could just be that Bejo views Uko as the only person who he can really partner with in all this, and everybody else on, on Uko's periphery has to go in order to just start with a clean slate. So even if Rama largely is Uko's friend, he's somebody who they just have to get rid of, even if it's not going to be in front of Uko, just to move forward with less baggage. Like, uh, maybe that's just the way to read this. Is like, we've got yeah, to clear out enough. everybody except for Uko, and then we can move forward. Because, I mean, they're killing Percosa, they kill Dad, they kill, they're trying to kill Rama, they're killing Eka, like all of these people... I, I think they must view as just part of Bangoon's tribe. And you've got to, you know, Uko's the only one who's signed on. Well, I think all of it is just to get the war started, right, between Goto and Bangoon. And that's why Percoso was on the list, because he is so close to Bangoon. And But we already know from even earlier in the movie, before they have their formal sit-down, that Goto and Bangoon are already kind of colleagues, right? They have, they're having a meeting together and talking about, hey, do you know this Beja guy? We, we should probably keep an eye out for him. Like, they already work together. So they're, I, I think, trying to set up this universe in which these two guys are going to go to war with each other, and that's harder than anybody anticipates. Uh, so Beja is, is like, under... Uh, estimates the relationship between the t- the professional relationship between the two and thinks he can, you know, sort of poke the dragon and get them to go to war so that he can have all of their assets, uh, you know, in cleaning up the mess. And that turns out to be impossible. So he just starts killing everybody. Well, but he does have Reza on his side. And, and or you know, I mean, that's that's an interesting scene when Reza is meeting Bejo and Uko toward the end of the film and has that line who he said, you know, they're like, we're going to work together. And he's like, well, let's see if I'm still here after dinner, then you offered me the right amount of money. Right. And that's kind of his position. And uh, so it's I mean, it's an interesting one because they clearly acknowledge that we have to keep the cops in this. And Reza is our window to controlling the cops. Yes. But we are going to take out Goto and get rid of this Japanese 
crime family that's also here. Right. Right. Yeah. So I, so I guess Rama's just he's just a side. Yeah. He's he's another character on Bangoon's troop who just has to go because he represents Bangoon more than he does Uko. I think that's it. I think that's it. Yeah. That that's enough. That's kind of enough for me that he's just in the way according to Beja so everybody's going to go. Yeah. Which is interesting because at some point, you know, when Uko's allegiance cuz Uko, you know, initially likes uh Rama a lot and at some oh, yeah. point that relationship, you know, deteriorates to the point where Eka Uko has chosen Beja and is okay letting everything else fall apart. Well, I think that's that point. I think yeah. when Rama, and we should say he, he's his code name in this is Yuda through Yuda, all of this, yeah. uh, which actually is a, a nod to his character in um, Gareth Evans' first film that they did together. But uh, we're just calling him Rama because <laughs> there's already so many names. So many names. Uh, but I think that when he comes in to the office and Uko has killed his dad and uh, Bejo has shot, no, I guess Uko shot Eka and Bejo was about to, sh- yeah, Bejo was about to kill Eka. And that's when Rama comes in and stops Bejo, gets uh, Eka on the way and then tries to stop what's going on. And then the assassin knocks him out. And that's a point where Uko could have said, yeah, let's just kill him. But I think this is where he still has that friendship and the allegiance to him. He doesn't say, you know, just just kill him. He basically doesn't say anything. And so that's why Bejo is just like, okay, let's just take him. And, you know, we'll we'll kill him somewhere else because we don't want to, you know, turn Uko or, or, you know, give him too much to think about. And so it seems like they're still in a line where they're trying to figure out how to control him. And I really think the only thing that happens at the end of the film that really sets Uko against Rama is the fact that Rama is there, you know, fighting everybody. And I think by that point, when Uko finds the wire in his wallet, he see, and then he sees the tattoo, the same tattoo on Bejo that was on the the prison guy that that had tried to kill him. So he knows Bejo tried to kill him in prison. Yes. And so he just kind of like, I'm screwed. I'm just killing everybody. Like, uh, you know, I, I'm going to try to come out on this on top. Well, that was a thing that I thought was actually kind of confusing is that he like his when he finds the tracker, he doesn't assume my understanding is he doesn't assume it was Rama. No. So why does he start to, that? That was the thing. Why does he then start shooting it at Rama? Just because Rama was fighting Beja's men in the office. I think that he starts shooting at everybody. I, I think he's at a point where he's just like, you know, everybody is against me. And I just, I think that he's crossed a line. It's kind of like his dad, I suppose, where his dad, at the when he first brings Rama into his office, he tells him to take off his clothes. We're going to check you and make sure you're clean. Yeah. And he he tells him, it's not that I don't trust you. It's that I don't trust anybody. And I I felt like that point at the end when he finds the the wire in his wallet, I don't think at that point he has any clue who put that there. But I think this is that, you know, learn uh, and grow wiser with experience is, yeah, yeah, where he's just like, I don't know who to trust anymore. I'm just going to kill everybody. And that was my sense is he's just like at that point, he'll take them all down. Well, and that car chase is central, too, because he knows that Rama has or he has to know that Rama has escaped. 
whether he knows it was with Eka or or not. Like he has, I don't think he has any visibility of that. Right, because uh, Bejo's men come in and say that that guy escaped. Well, but they say, well, go find him. He's like, well, he's actually here. Yeah, he's working his <laughs> so, way up. Yeah, he's, he's on his way up to see you. He's like, well, go ahead and stop him then. No, that was that was actually really funny. The most unintentionally, I think, comedic line in the movie is right after Eka gets shot in the knee by Bejo. And Rama runs in, starts fighting, and turns to Eka and says, Eka, run! Yeah. <laughs> I <just> laughed out loud. <laughs> Hubble! I know. Right. That, was, that was quite funny. Uh, I'm sure the, like, the, there's something lost in translation. Yeah, yeah. That, But that is one of the other key action sequences in the film, that escape scene, because you have... Rama taken by, you know, knocked out by the assassin. Bejo tells his men, okay, just take him. They load him up into the car. And then we see that Eka is actually in the parking garage and follows them as they leave, which leads us to this chase as Eka is now trying to save Rama. And the phone rings. And, and the phone rings because Eka calls Rama. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so then. And the thug sees that Eka is, that it, it's really that, you know, that Rama has Eka in his contacts because the name shows up. Like there is some sort of awareness that this thug now has. Yeah. And so now we go into this, this car chase, which is, uh, an exhilarating car chase as Rama is fighting these four guards in the car. Eka is chasing him. You've got other cars chasing Eka, trying to stop him, a motorbike also trying to stop him. And just an exhilarating, well-choreographed, uh, you know, action sequence uh, on wheels. Uh, how, did the, uh, how did the car chase play for you? So good. And it's so beautifully shot. And they do the thing where they're passing the camera in and out of the car windows. And it's just extraordinary. And I, I just felt like I was in the car so <laughs> going so fast with these guys. I love the way they show stuff happening outside the car. Like that first shot where the, we have the shots in the middle of the car. It's like on the center console, wide lens showing all three of the passengers in the back seat with uh, Rama in the middle unconscious as his head comes up and you see Eka in the car behind him about to smash into the car like that is extraordinary choice to to actually give us a sense of of um, impending doom leading to just great driving and smashing and so many cars uh, I thought it was great. I thought it was really great. Did you watch the behind the scenes where it shows the guy dressed like a car seat? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. That is that is one of my favorite things. I yeah. I, I made uh, my daughter come watch, and she's like, wow, that was really well choreographed. And I said, well, let's watch the behind the scenes. I want, yeah. I want you to see how they did it. And when you <laughs> see that, uh, again, they're using that, um, the fig rig. Yeah, the fig rig. Uh, and they're, they're on that little kind of cart, kind of moving down from car to car. And they pass the fig rig in through the window to show Eka driving. And it's a person dressed like the passenger seat. <laughs> takes the camera, films him, and then leans across and out the, the opposite back window and gives it to somebody who's laying on a track that's attached to the side of the car who grabs it and holds it so they can film that the, uh, the truck pull up with the shotgun. I mean, the way that Evans puts this stuff together, it's just mind-boggling and it's so fun. And the last thing I ever expected to see was a camera operator dressed like a chair... <laughs> <laughs> to work the camera. It made me laugh so hard. But it's just, it, it that leads to 
these exhilarating, well-choreographed action sequences. And that's what I love so much about the film and just the way that Evans puts it together is like he's really working to kind of think in ways that I think are a little more unique. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Disguised as a passenger seat. And obviously, the world of smaller cameras and, and these digital cameras that filmmakers get to use now, obviously, that has really helped. And, you know, I mean, I don't think you could have done an action sequence quite so complex uh, back when you were using big 35 millimeter cameras. And so I, I think the smaller cameras has really helped action filmmakers do, do a lot more really unique things. And these were there are multiple red, all shot on red, uh, multiple red cameras being tossed around. Reds, and then they also GoPro used threes. GoPro for some of the little shot, the quick shots in the action sequences. And um, I know there's another one. I can't remember what it was, but yeah. Uh, very, very cool. Very cool. Well, and then, you know, from that point, as as Rama is out of that car situation and has the conversation with Eka, leaving Eka kind of to die in this little chair in these ruins, which is just kind of such a tragic, sad moment. Uh, but then you get that phone call to Bunawar and and he tells him basically, like, it's good to know that you're on your way, but I'm going to go stop them anyway. And you get that as it, you cut to him in the car. And that leads us to our final action sequence as he drives his car into the villain's lair, basically starts fighting on the ground floor and then works his way up. And we get all of the stuff downstairs fighting those guys, uh, throwing shelves on them and just all the stuff that he does. And then moving upstairs to where now he has to fight all of the the next level guys so now he's fighting baseball bat and uh baseball batman and hammer girl and then he's taking on the assassin and then he's finally getting into the room to take on bejo and reza and uko and uh yeah thoughts on all of this uh, final action sequence from you well i love the final action sequence that that it actually takes us back to the raid right he's working his way up a building and i think that's really fun uh the fact that it leads us to you like he's able to dispose of hammer girl and and baseball batman and then they go to the kitchen and the kitchen is where stuff happens and uh, although one of the greatest baseball man hits is in this hallway scene where he places the baseball bat in the mouth of the guy and he f- and it sticks there and that's that's rough i mean that's a rough shot if you're squeamish that's a that's tough that that is tough and it, I, you see like hammer girl you know we know that she's deaf and you see um she gets her glasses uh knocked off and you see she also is missing an eye so i mean you know fighting like that is is uh, yeah. pretty interesting it's but dangerous yeah it's, but like watching the two of them battle him and you know the interesting thing about rama is he is the one figure who is making his way all the way up and he has been pummeled uh, time and time again by a lot of these people. I mean, he's been hit by the hammers. He's been hit by the bats. He still makes it into the kitchen. And I like how, I, I think this is probably my favorite scene in the film, when he takes on the assassin. This is Sesep Arif Rahman, who is, um, the, you know, another very well-trained Penchak uh, pen, pen Silat, uh, you know, fighter and trainer. And he's one of the three who ends up in the force awakens also which is um, yes. kind of fun to see and we'll certainly talk about uh, a number of these guys back when we get to the john wick films but the way that this scene plays it it gets quiet all of the cooks in the kitchen they all stop 
And at first you're like, are they all going to attack? Like, what's the level of training with all of these people? But I love how it's just a quiet filing out of all of them. And then you have this fight that starts between Rama and the assassin that feels very, very much in line with the actual martial arts, like the way they position themselves and attack. And then they reposition themselves and attack. And it, it, it developed so beautifully as a fight of these two really just trying to see who was best until the assassin then decides to pull out his knives and, and, uh, you know, it's, I guess it's called a karambit, that type of knife that's often used in this martial arts, the specific style. I just, it was, it was really just kind of a, a stunning, uh, fight to watch. Well, I think the um, that that final scene. I mean, it's it's what it's like 198 cuts. Like it's it's extraordinary, and it's actually. I mean, it's a long martial arts fight before those knives come out, and they're throwing pots and pans at each other, and they're. I mean, they're going to town. It is. It, it's a dramatic and brutal, like fisticuffs sequence before they even get to. He even pulls out the knives, and I I think that's just outstanding, especially because it's also a rematch, right? In the story, the assassin already knocked him out earlier in the office, like a half hour ago. And so it's uh, it's exciting to see them sort of come back together and and that that it does feel like the assassin knows just in the the way he's he's sort of portraying it, that he knows this is going to be a fight. And all the when the kitchen staff leave, this is this is going to be a, a, a fight, even though he knows he's he's up to the challenge. It's going to be serious. And it was interesting because, I mean, I think they go, uh, the way that I read it is the assassin goes into the fight uh, if, with, ready for hand-to-hand combat because that's that's what Rama is bringing. And the assassin knows he beat him last time. Yeah. And he was able to take Rama out. And then as the fight progresses, it, it becomes clear that Rama is just not going to quit and is going to take him down. And that's where I felt like now I'm going to prove myself as a villain and I'm going to pull the knives out in a fist fight and turn it into something that, uh, you know, I, I'm now going to have the upper hand because I don't want to lose because I'm a villain. And I found that to be a really interesting turn and the way that Rama had to then adapt. And man, he got slashed so many times. I'm like, how is this man still standing? Still Like that standing. gash on his back that was just pumping oh, blood out. It was God. it was brutal. But, well, um, it, it is the same. It's... It, in in terms of a callback to the last movie, it is the unspoken sort of spiritual sequel to the sequence with um, with Mad Dog and the brothers, um, it, where he said, or, or it's Mad Dog and and um, is it Mad Dog and well, it's Andy Rama in the first movie where he says, I you know I, I put away the guns right like it's, I, I want to yeah it's it's Mad Dog when he's fighting one of the other like the head of the yeah the cops whatever his name was right right and he's he actually says like i'm i want to fight you because that's the, the essentially honor of the fighter kind of a spirit oh, and that's what this and he's like it's is. more fun this way yeah, yeah. more yeah. fun right um so i i thought that was really great and then obviously the the um resolution of this giant kitchen fight is is pretty satisfying too when uh he takes one of the karambits and is able to finish the job yeah but it does he yeah so good uh but then it's just kind of then it just kind of ends right we've gotten rid of the um we've gotten rid of all the baddies and he goes in and and we have the final like the sort of finale of the story which is that the i i don't know that necessarily the truth comes out because even when uh uko 
dies, he doesn't know everything. No, but what what I, I found really gratifying in the way that it ends is, you know, Uko doesn't trust anybody. Uh, you know, Bejo shoots Rama in the shoulder. And uh, but then Uko takes this shotgun and kills Reza and kills uh, Bejo and then starts shooting uh, uh, Rama, shooting at Rama behind the couch. And, and Rama only is able to, you know, you know, get out of there because he throws one of these karambits at him and then jumps over and kind of stabs him again. But then he holds him like as Uko dies, like he sits there and, you know, it, it's like there had been this relationship that had evolved between these two characters, which was really interesting. And, and he kind of stayed with him as he died, which I thought was actually pretty interesting before then he gets up and, and, and heads out of the building. So, yeah, it was it was an intriguing way to end this leading to that final we've already talked about it, but that final conversation we don't get to hear between Rama and the the son, Gojo's Godo's son. Yes. Which again, uh, I think just a pitch perfect way to end this um end the film. Yeah. That's it it's a thrill ride. It's a long film. I mean, two and a half hours, definitely longer than the first film, but it doesn't necessarily feel long. It just feels uh, exhilarating and the story, you know, I I've, I've read some people saying, you know, uh you know, it has it has a story but the story is uh, convoluted or it feels um, like, you know, too much story for the sort of film that they're doing. But I, I didn't feel that at all. And I'm, I'm not exactly sure that perspective. I guess some people look at it like they just want the action again or something. But, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed the twists and turns of fighting the the complexities of these different elements in the Jakartan uh, gang warfare. I mean, did it play that way for you? Did you have issues with the story feeling like it's too much? Anything that I was confused about in the story has has largely been cleared up thanks to our conversation, but I wrote off that it's not in my native language and I was confused about names and I needed to sit down and really think about it. Part of that is because the movie moves really fast. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I, I feel like this is a movie that is made better on rewatch because you can kind of keep up. You know what's coming. It makes more sense. Like like that scene in the beginning, I, I had not made a connection that Goto was the same guy that was sitting in the in the office, in Bangwan's office, drinking tea uh, early in the film, having that conversation about Beja by the time I saw them at their tete-a-tete at the end, like near the end of the movie where Bangwan was, was... So knowing that they had a relationship makes a difference in the way Bangwan makes his choices. It makes a difference in the way their relationship, the father and son relationship works for, for Uko. I, uh, so that, I took responsibility for that. And now that we've talked about it, I've watched it twice, essentially. I think, uh, I think the world of this movie, I actually think... You could take out all the martial arts stuff and amp it up with some more relationship stuff. But the story itself and the performances and the actors, I think, holds up still as a great crime film, as a great sort of crime procedural sort of thing. And you could you could like it doesn't need to be strictly a an Indonesian martial arts movie to be a great movie. Like there's enough here to satisfy both sides for me. Yeah, I think that there's uh, a lot to that. And I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I was comparing it um, with like Infernal Affairs and The Departed because of the nature of kind of undercover cops and that element and everything. And while that film has a lot more or those films have a lot more twists and turns because there's undercover people on both sides and you're getting a really interesting they're searching, trying to figure out who's who's the undercover person. Like there are interesting elements there um, that make those that 
kind of story thread really interesting. But this one, I think it still has a really interesting journey as we're following this cop who's trying to basically work to help stop corruption and kind of keeps finding everybody's kind of corrupt and leading to that end where I think he kind of walks away from it all and just wants to wants to go back to his family after being stuck in this mess for years and you know just is really looking to i mean his whole motivation yes he is down with kind of the corruption in their system but really was doing it to protect his family and here at the end he's just like i've gone through everything i i need to go through seriously i'm done i just want to be with my family now and i don't know i just i find it to be the way that it ends i mean we don't get to see him reuniting with his family we don't get that but i did still feel a sense of closure for him as a character in this world I compare it also favorably to Heat, right? Like there is that sort of epic structure of criminal relationships. And uh, I, so I, I came out of my first viewing of this thinking, well, I should I should watch Heat again. Yeah. Uh, less, less, you know, physical fighting, much, much more gunplay. But um, but it has that same sort of spirit. Yeah. No, I think that's a good comparison, too. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. Well, we'll be right back. But first our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Alex Roll, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Andy, are we going to get the Raid 3? There had been talk about it for a long time. Uh, Evans had been saying he was going to do a third one uh, for quite a long time. Like uh, he was talking about it. And actually the way that he talked about it, which is really interesting, it, it really would have kind of been a film like The Bourne Ultimatum. He said it actually takes place two hours before the end of The Raid 2. Whoa. Which I really piques my curiosity as to what he was actually thinking of doing there. But that's kind of what he was wanting to do. Uh, later, he ended up saying he's taking a break from martial arts movies for a while before he gets to it. And uh, then even later than that, he said, it's, uh, you know, it's not happening anytime soon. I have ideas in, head, in my head, but nothing's written. Maybe 2018 or 2019. And then later he said he's he doesn't think he's going to go forward with it. He feels like the franchise ended. And he he attributes a lot of that to the fact that he moved back to the UK. And he said um, that was kind of the closing chapter on the franchise. And, quote, we ended the story pretty neatly, I feel, in part two. I'm aware there's an interest for it, so never say never, but it's unlikely to happen anytime soon, end quote. I think that's okay. I do, too. I think that's fine. I don't need another one. I don't need another raid. I think that ended well. I, I don't either, but I am really curious about a story that takes place two hours before the end of this film. Like, what would that story be? Like, the fact that it's not necessarily a sequel per, per se mm -hmm. really piques my curiosity. But again, if we never get it, I'm okay with that. Well, it, it actually, it reminds me of, uh, again, to bring up Heat, that Michael Mann felt like there was a story to tell and wrote a novel. 
uh, a, a prequel know, tell, novel, yeah. A, yeah, a prequel novel, right? Like to to share more story that that he wanted to tell in that universe. I think that's actually interesting. I'm not saying I'd want to read the raid book, but you know, yeah, I am curious, like you, what the what the story would be. So, okay, did it win any awards? How to do an award season? Did well for itself. I mean, it certainly was something that people noticed, and I think that's uh, you know attributes to what Evans was doing and how he crafted the story. It ended up having eleven wins with sixteen other nominations at the Indonesian Movie Actor Awards. Uh, Arafin Putra, who played Uko, uh, won Best Supporting Actor, and Donny Alamsaya uh, was nominated for Supporting Actor but lost to Arafin. It also was nominated for Favorite Film but lost to Dibalik ninety eight. Over at the Jackie Chan International Action Film Week Awards, uh, Julia Stell won Best New Actor. She was Hammer Girl. And at the Maya Awards, it won the International Achievement Award for the Equator Film Expo, whatever that is. It also won Best Special Effects, Best Editing, Best Cinematography, and Arafin Putra won Best Supporting Actor. And then it also won Best DVD Collection. Uh, Julia Stell was nominated for Memorable Short uh, Appearance, which is an interesting category, but lost to Norman R. Akuen in We Are Malukans. It was nominated for Makeup and Hairstyling, but lost to the film Killers. Same thing with Sound Design. And Original Score was nominated, but lost to We Are Malukans. Same thing with Feature Film, lost to We Are Malukans. And Oka Antara was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, but lost to Arafin Putra. Uh, Julia Stell is also in the movie Headshot with Iko Uwes, and now I want to watch it more than anything else uh, because it's the only other one that's available in the iTunes store right now that uh. I could just push play. It looks really good. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, how to do with the box office? Well, with the success of the first film, Evans did get a boost in the budget for this second film, four and a half million, or just under four point nine million in today's dollars. The movie premiered at Sundance January twenty first, two thousand fourteen, before getting its limited domestic release March twenty eighth, twenty fourteen, opposite Noah and Sabotage. It didn't do as well as the first film, interestingly, despite ending up on more screens, nine hundred fifty four in its third week, where it hit twelfth in the box office. Still, it did do well, earning two point six million domestically and three point nine million internationally for a total gross of $7.1 million in today's dollars. That lands the film with an adjusted profit per finishment of just under 15000 and lands Indonesia with a pair of action films to be proud of. I think they can be proud of a lot of stuff, including these movies. Food, spicy food, uh, yes. Yes. rivers. There's plenty of things to be proud of, not just this movie. Fish. Yes. <laughs> so much stuff. Antiquities. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, but also high on the list is a pair of raid films. So uh, that's awesome. I'm so glad we talked about these movies. What a great excuse to see the second film. Uh, makes me very, very happy that we got these on the list. Yeah, I, I honestly was surprised to find out that you hadn't seen the second one. So I'm, I'm thrilled that you now had a chance to watch it. And uh, certainly it's a pair of films worth revisiting and uh, and just kind of going down that road again with uh, Gareth Evans and his crazy action for sure well we'll be right back for our ratings but first here's the trailer for next week's movie kicking off our exploration of the twilight saga some people think we're crazy for jumping into this mess but we are going to do it and we're starting with <laughs> 2008's twilight directed by katherine hardwick
You're impossibly fast and strong. You gotta give me some answers. I'd rather hear your theories. I have considered radioactive spiders and kryptonite. It's all superhero stuff, right? What if I'm not the hero? What if I'm the bad guy? I know what you are. Your skin is pale white and ice cold. You don't go out into the sunlight. Say it out loud. Say it. Vampire. Are you afraid? No. This isn't real. This kind of stuff just doesn't exist. It does in my world. I just want to try one thing. I don't know how long I've waited for you. What is going on? Security guard at the mill got killed by some kind of animal. An animal? My family, we're different from others of our kind. You brought a snack. What, now he's coming after me? The hunt is his obsession. He's never gonna stop. I'd rather die than to stay away from you. He's got unparalleled senses, absolutely lethal. I'll do whatever it takes to make you safe again. faster than the others but not stronger i'm strong enough to kill you you are my life now All right, Andy, let's talk about Letterboxd, Andy. Letterboxd.com is our favorite uh, social network for movie letter lovers, and uh, we uh, love it and live on it. And you can find us individually, Soda Creek Film for Andy, and I'm just Pete Wright. But you can find us together uh, at Letterboxd.com slash The Next Reel. And uh, that's our that's our page. Our What's it called? It's our platinum profile poo-poo page. What's it called? It's called something. <laughs> I don't think that's they have a word for it. I don't even uh, know, but uh, it's fantastic. Pro- and we yeah. and so you should go there and follow us and uh, follow us all equally. That's great. But if you love it, if you love Letterboxd and you find that you want to support the fantastic team that makes this service and get rid of ads on your own profile, you can do that at the dot com slash Letterboxd. It'll take you right to the page where you can register yourself for a pro or patron account yourself and save 20 percent. Uh, works for renewals as well. Okay, Andy, how are you going to do this? Please, I mean, please tell me it's a five-star movie for you. <laughs> you know, I, I still get mired in some of the the story, um, sorting out like kind of the, the um, all of the stuff that's going on with Rama toward the end. So I'm still four and a half with this one like I am oh, with the last one. Oh my God! I know, I, I'm, I'm the worst. <laughs> With my with my quibbles and uh, complaining about things, but that's where I sit with this one. Extraordinary quibble, extraordinary I, I'm quibble. I know I'm the worst. I um I am a five star with this movie, and and the big question that I left last week, having never seen the Raid Two, was would my experience with the Raid Two cause me to remove stars? from the raid because it wasn't good. I'm not going to actually remove stars from the raid. They're both five-star movies. This is a pair of five-star hardcore action movies that I I love. I just love these movies. So bring them on. That's awesome. Well, don't forget, everybody, check out thenextreel.com slash letterbox. You can get your patron or pro membership. And as Pete said, it works for renewals as well. 
And speaking of memberships, we also have a membership. If you would like to learn more about it, you can go to thenextreel.com slash membership, and you can sign up where uh, you get early access to the episodes. You get, you know, we get a pre-show chat, you get a post-show chat on our episodes. You get bonus episodes. We have bonus episodes dropping all the time. In fact, uh, you know, last month's member bonus episode, we looked at Gremlins 2, and who knows what we're going to look at for November, but uh, we're always throwing those out there. So members get all sorts of extra content, including extra channels in our Discord community. So check it out. We'd love to have you. Like I said, you can learn more at thenextreel.com slash membership. So what did you think about the Raid 2? We would love to know. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in the Discord community where we'll be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. So we went to the bottom of the barrel, I think. Oh, we did. This week. Because we're, we're very happy with the movie, with quibbles in some cases. Yeah, sometimes and it's fun to read. <laughs> so the opposite I, side of the fence. I have one that's not trying to be funny. Can I read my not trying to be funny one? Sure. All right. This is from Hedge, Hedgehog Fans. It's a half star. It says, this is not good. Gone is the charm and simple brutality of the first. In its place is a lackluster plot that feels complicated and devoid of reasons to give a toss. The ambition is immense and truly commendable. The cinematography is trying very hard and feels nearly as kinetically driven as the first, but without the confinement of the apartment block setting, much of the thrill is lost. Plot-wise, our protagonist makes no progress on getting revenge on his brother's death, and neither does he gather the required evidence for the police to arrest the mob. If it was meant to be commentary, it simply irritated me as a viewer and was narratively unsatisfying. That last paragraph, I think, is interesting because we did talk about uh, that Andy was assassinated early, early in the movie, like very first sort of sequence. First thing, yeah. And that doesn't seem to like resolve does it resolve for you that sort of did you need it to resolve i think it does but in a in a way where i mean it's not like we get to see rama take down bejo himself in you know to take to avenge his brother's death or anything like that right but we do see him in the situation where he's taking down the whole gang he takes down uh, you know, the, the police commissioner, or not the commissioner, but the head of the cops, Reza, has been killed by Uko. And then, like, Rama steps away from all of it. So, I don't know. For me, I guess it felt like there was this realization uh, toward the end of the film that it's this is this never-ending cycle. I mean, as soon as he's taken down this entire gang, a whole other gang shows up. And, yeah, you know, right? they're all fresh and ready to go. So many and it's gangs. Like, there's really no way out of any of this. And, you know, as we said, Bunawar is the good cop, but also seems like he's he's he has some shady approach to the way that he's dealing with things. And so it seems like, I don't know, the way that I kind of take it at the end of the whole thing is Rama's just like, and that's his line, like, I'm finished. Like, I, where is any of this ever going to lead? Like, it's not ever going to go anywhere. And so he's probably going to go back to his wife and, you know, you know, open up a, a sandwich shop or something. Like, I feel like Ugh. he's just so completely done with his world. That's the Please way I kind of open a it, sandwich yeah. shop. <laughs> uh, you need to stay in my shop. I, I totally agree with you. For me, I guess I, I 
there was stuff that it wasn't said explicitly, but for me, it would just continued his rage on, you know, on on the bad people. He was he was torn up in it and he saw it through to the extent that he needed to see it through. I I felt like him covered in blood at the end and cuts and just broken parts of him was enough to to count as making progress on getting revenge on his brother's death. That was it was fine. I didn't need I didn't need it to be said. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, half star. I, I get that. I get how that could be unsatisfying for some. It was not unsatisfying for me. Yeah. Well, I have a one star by Glenn Heath Jr., who just has this to say, like getting kicked in the nuts for 150 minutes and being asked to gleefully revel in the sadism being perpetuated. You can have it. I will take it. <laughs> well, and I think it speaks to our conversation in our pre-show chat that we had about violence in film and how, you know, there are some people just it, it's not about the choreography, the the operatic elements of it. It's just about violence. And a lot of people just it's too much. And so, you know, I, I definitely get it because there is a lot of violence in this film. So I certainly can see that perspective for some people. Thanks, Letterboxd. You're the best. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15-plus years, Transistor has been, hands down, the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world... Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.